Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Good to see everybody. Um, man, if you look around, you're going to notice that there's uh, a few of our beloved brethren who aren't here today uh, because they're quarantining or, you know, maybe they were uh, exposed this last week. As you know, there's an uptick in Kansas City in terms of COVID cases. So we want to continue to be praying for them, pray that God would bring them back to us as soon as possible, uh, but also that he would continue to protect us as a ministry and as a church uh, from the, the, the lasting effects of, of COVID-19. Um, but it is an ongoing battle, is it not? Right? Along with everything else in our world that, that, is, uh, that is creating chaos. Um, but that's what this series that we're currently in is about, isn't it? Right? Being a righteous remnant. And that means that in many ways we're going to be facing all kinds of difficult circumstances as Christians that live in 2020, as a as a righteous remnant in this generation. And some of those will be attacks of people around us, people that are hostile to the gospel. Uh, and sometimes that might manifest as us living in a time in which God's judgment is upon, um, upon the people, right? And so we've got to, in some ways, endure that as well and, and to face that with integrity and with faith. And so as we've been in this series... Uh, we've been talking about this idea of being a remnant or being the last of the last of the last, the last bit, the holdout. And we define righteous remnant two different ways. So are you guys ready? Are you re we're getting into it. That's, that's what's happening right now. This is my transition. We're getting into it. Okay? If I have to announce that. Um, sometimes too much sleep is bad too. And some of you justified staying up extra late last night. That was also a bad move. Right? So, but we'll... we'll We'll do it. We'll get through it. That's part of just being in the, you know, in the college and young adult ministry is that people stay up too late. So, um, but this is how we define a, a righteous remnant. First of all, a remnant is a believer or believers who stand alone in order to stand for God. So if no one else is going to stand for or with the Lord, I will. Okay? As Sam would say it, uh, I'm your huckleberry. That's how he would say it if you guys have ever seen the movie Tombstone. I don't know... Any, has anybody seen that? Anybody into Westerns? Okay, so yeah, there you go. There's a, there's a handful of you. Uh, but yeah, yeah, so uh, someone who's willing to stand alone, despite the fact that we live in a generation and in a world that is hostile to the gospel, uh, we're willing to say, I believe, and I, and I stand with the Lord, and I stand with his word. A righteous remnant, remnant is also a believer who trades temporary pain for long-term peace. Temporary pain for long-term peace. And so our, our base text for this series has been Ezekiel chapter 14. And we saw that Ezekiel makes reference to three men, right, who live as a righteous remnant in the age in which they were, they were born into. And we'll, we'll, look, we'll pick it up here in Ezekiel 14, verse 17. It says, for if I bring a sword, and this is speaking of God's judgment, upon that land and say, sword, go through the land so that I cut off man and beast from it, though these three men were in it. As I live, saith the Lord, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only shall, del shall deliver themselves. So in other words, that we only can answer for our own righteousness. Does that make sense? 
And our righteousness doesn't have some sort of residual effect necessarily on the people around us. Everyone gets to make a free will decision. And in a world where that, that is turned against the Lord and you, and, and you are the righteous remnant, only you can make a decision about whether or not you pursue the Lord. You can't make that decision for your children. You can't make that decision for your spouse. You can't make that decision for your friends or family members. You have to make it for you and you alone. But with that comes pres preservation, and there, there is benefit, and it does impact people around you. So look at verse 19. Or if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord, uh, Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more, when I send my four sword judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword and the famine and the noisome beast and the pestilence to cut off from it man and beast, yet, behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you, and ye shall see their way and their doings, and ye shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it, and they shall comfort you when ye see their ways and their doings, and ye shall know that I have done... Uh, that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord God. Now we know, and we'll continue to reference this for the remainder of the series, we want to make sure that we're aware that this, this passage, Ezekiel 14, absolutely is a tribulation context. And so as we read Ezekiel 14, this is kind of a playbook for the nation of Israel after the rapture of the church, after we are gone. Um, this is a, an encouragement and an admonishment to those Jews that remain who are being called back to faith. They're going to be a remnant people in a world that despises them and persecutes them. Okay, We know that, but we're looking at this passage inspirationally. We're looking at it as a, as a doctrinal set uh, that, that provides us with insight in how to live in a world that looks a lot more like Noah's. Okay, It's pre-judgment. Right? And, and, and we know that believers like us, those that put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we're not going to have to go through the tribulation. We're going to be relieved from that wrath. But the point is this. There's a lot that we're going to have to do as believers in the last of the last days. There's a lot that we're going to have to go through. There's a lot that we're going to have to see. And we need to have the faith and the integrity and the virtue and the mindset and the boldness to be mission-minded despite our circumstances. Um, has anybody ever been on uh, the detonator? Has anybody ever been on the detonator? The Worlds of Fun ride? Do people go to Worlds of Fun anymore? Yes. Some people are like really serious about Worlds of Fun. They're like very excited about Worlds of Fun. Uh, Worlds of Fun, we used to go there a lot when I was young. I don't know. I, th I thought it was a, th a thing. I don't, maybe not. The detonator is the ride that, that you sit in. It's, it's, Kind of a, it's a cylindrical, it's a pr prism of some sort, right? And it it's, juts up from the earth like 20 stories or something, I don't know. It's a lot. It seems very high. And you sit on it, and you lo you're locked in, and this thing shoots you like it's going to shoot you straight to heavens. Like this is what I imagine the Tower of Babylon actually probably just had one of these on the top of it. Because um, you feel like, when you're, like it's just going to keep going. And that you're absolutely done for it. But then it stops and then it drops you. And then you, you're in a free fall. Straight to the earth. And, and you're, everything in your body is telling you you're going to die. Right? Now, the last, 
the last few weeks, we've, we've been looking at different men that have endured different things. You know, we, we've talked about Noah, who lived in a wicked generation, right? Where he was the last man on earth, if you can imagine, who had any desire to follow the Lord. And we, we made connections between us and, 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 and Noah, and he brought us encouragement to be a righteous remnant. And then we looked at Daniel's life, and he lived in an antagonistic culture. He was inundated with people who wanted to rob him of his faith, wanted to pull him and sift him, and yet he, he stood with integrity as a righteous remnant in a world and in a culture that despised what he believed. But now we're going to look at a man named Job. And Job is living a life uh, on the detonator. And the story of Job is a story of how the righteous remnant responds when the bottom falls out on their lives. And how they grapple with fear and confusion and how the arm of God remains present despite the worst of circumstances. And and I have to tell you this, this has been the the part of the series that has probably been the most difficult for me to study. Not only because Job is probably, at least for me, the hardest book in the Bible, uh, but also because it's just emotionally very, very heavy. It's a powerful story, and it's emotionally very, very difficult territory to go through. And so let's pray and ask the Lord that he would be with us as we look at Job's life and consider how he responds despite the fact that his entire life is decimated and destroyed. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we we very soberly approach you this morning. And uh, Lord, we just ask uh, that you would be with us and that you would help us. And... uh, Lord, we know that uh, our own righteousness is as filthy rags. And if we come to you and we, we try to present the goodness of our lives as, as, as though they have some sort of great and eternal value, um, Lord, we know that there's nothing, there's nothing good in us. And the only righteousness that we truly have is, as believers is the righteousness bestowed upon us because of faith in Jesus Christ, and, and it's only your grace that makes us righteous, and it's only your grace that makes us perfect, and it's only, only your grace that allows us to endure any difficult in this li- difficulty in this life, any suffering. And so, Lord, we just, we just call out to you and say, Lord, we need you. And that as, as our world around us uh, seems to devolve and to um, crumble, um, Lord, we... We stand here saying, well, we want, to, we want to be with you. We want to stand with you. We want to, we want to believe your word. We don't, we don't want to, uh, Lord, we don't want to crumble along with the world. And so we ask that you would hold us up and you'd teach us how to rely on your grace and that we would learn to know you and we would learn to be quiet and humble before you. It's what we need. It's what we need, Lord. So teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, so there's a lot to say about the book of Job. And we, you know, for our purposes right now, we don't have time to go into all of the details that surround Job. But in terms of the background, the book of Job is the oldest written book in your Bible. Okay, so of, of all of the books in the Old Testament, you think, well, these are just old. You just generalize them. These are, just, these are old books. Job is the oldest. It's the, it's the first of all of the books that have been written. And... Um, It's also, in terms of its history, very, very old. So the story and the narrative of Job uh, 
uh, took place in about 1800 BCE, okay, which would have also been about the time that it was written. Okay, so that's a, that's a long time ago, right? Uh, if, if, you, if any of you are interested in history, you would understand that that's, that's a long ways ago. And some of the oldest texts that exist in the world today come from about that era, right? Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and books like that, books that we see as being really old and ancient. Um, Job is a contemporary of books and stories like that. Now, it was written most likely by a man named Elihu, who's also in this story, okay? And the story takes place in the city of Uz, all right, a city uh, in Edom. And this actually also happens to be where Petra resides, Okay, and if you know anything about Bible prophecy, then you know that one day during the Great Tribulation that the Jewish people, the remnant people, are going to be called to flee into Petra, into the rock, and to hide themselves. And it's the only place in which they'll be protected from, from the wrath of the Antichrist. Okay, so there's a lot happening here in Job that's also prophetic. And again, I don't have time... Uh, to get into all those things, but you need to understand that Job is a very, very prophetic book. Job comes after Esther, all right, and Esther tells the story of a, of a Gentile bride who is brought into a feast at the end of the story, right, into a marriage feast, which is what happens to the raptured church after they're delivered. And then the, immediately you run right into Job, and Job is a book of the Great Tribulation, and it takes place in Petra, right, in, in, in the city of Uz, you understand, you're seeing the correlations here? And so Job, uh, the story of Job, is a story of tribulation. And it pictures for us the tribulation that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. It pictures for us the tribulation that, that lost man suffers in hell. And it also pictures for us the tribulation Jews, the, the prophetic tribulation to come. Now I also want to say that Job is one of the wildest books in the Bible. In fact, there's a lot of statements that are made in the book of Job uh, that are very scientific in nature. The book talks a lot about nature. It talks about the universe and the earth and its construct. And some of the declarations that the book of Job makes predate scientific discovery. Right? So things that, that the book of Job was saying in 1800 B.C. predates scientific discovery sometimes by millennia, which is pretty amazing. Our, our God is... His word is fantastic, and we can trust it. It is our authority, and, it, and it's beautiful. And the way that it manifests, particularly in terms of prophecy, is without equal in, in our world. So the book of Job is amazing. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the world in which Job resided. Okay, so to frame kind of historically what's going on here, the characters of this story, they precede Moses by about 400 years. Okay, so you think about... Moses, and you think about Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible, all right? The characters in our story, they predate Moses by about 400 years. Job lived a, a few hundred years after Noah's flood. Okay, so just, again, for frame of reference, just as Noah could have interacted with people who had interactions with Adam which was, when we talked about that, that's a pretty wild thought, isn't it? That Noah may have known people that knew Adam. In the same way, Job may have had interactions with people who knew Noah. That's pretty wild. He, he may have been able to come in contact with people who knew Noah. 
And so if that helps you a little bit understand the time frame in which the story takes place. He lived among the patriarchs, okay? So his contemporaries would have been like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Job, beyond that, Job was likely a king in Edom. Job was a Gentile. He was a son of the descendants of Esau. And he may have been the character Jobab from Genesis chapter 36, who was the king, the king in Edom. Okay, are you with me? Is this, or does this part bore you? I feel like I have to say this stuff, though. It gives you a little, bit, a, a little bit of perspective. It helps you understand that Job was an actual person who lived and breathed, right? And this story, as, as outlandish and as crazy as it's going to get, we have to understand that it's true, that it's real, that it happened. And so now that we understand that, let's, let's look at, at verse 1. Don't worry, that's not an alien spacecraft. That's Shane Manser backing up the van, the shuttle. And apparently, he's driving backwards very far. Okay, verse 1. The man, the man Job. Are we ready? So, and I hope, that, I hope that tickled your interest a little bit um, and, and that you would consider studying Job yourself. Oh, they're not done. That's good. Okay, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Okay, so in terms of Job's righteous character, he was exceptional. He was a good man, and likely he was better than any of us in this room. You understand? In terms of his character, he was likely better than any one of us in this room. It says that he was perfect. Now, when we see that word perfect in Scripture, we've got to understand that that's not perfection the way we see it in our contemporary language, okay? The idea of perfection in Scripture is holiness and spiritual maturity. He was a spiritually mature man. And just like Noah was said to be perfect too, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, it says that that Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right? Job was also described as being perfect, but it says that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so what we can know is that, that Noah's perfection wasn't sinless perfection, but it was that he needed grace and he relied on grace to live a, a spiritually mature life. Do you understand? And the same thing would be true for Job. Job wasn't perfect because he was without sin. Job was perfect because he con- conducted himself in the power and the authority of God's grace. Okay? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so perfection is what happens in us as we grow closer to God and his word. Okay? Make sense? And so he was perfect. It also says that he was upright, which means he was of high integrity. He was just. It says that he feared God. Psalm 11 uh, 111.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we know that through, through Job's fear, he would have also been a man of great wisdom. And it says that he eschewed evil, which means he fled from sin and he avoided it at all costs. Okay, so Job was an exceptional man, a man of good character. Okay, now beyond his character, we also see that he was a man of great wealth. And great power, right? If he was a king in Edom, we can assume that he, ha- he was a man of great power, right? Verse 2 says, And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Okay, so he has, t- he has ten kids. Now, the number ten is the number of what? Does anybody know in, in Scripture? 
No? Numero any numerologists in here? Okay, it's the, it's the number of Gentiles, right? That's good. And it's also the number of completion, which is really interesting. And so from a prophetic perspective, again, there's some more to, for you to look into. But, but he has 10 kids, and it says his substance was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, uh, camels, camels, camel soup cans. Uh, no, 1,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen, which would have been 1,000 ox. And 500 she-asses and a very great household. So this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. So, so Job was the greatest of all the men of the east, an Edomite king. So Job was wealthy and he had great power. And yet, and yet, he was still a man dependent on God. Look at verse 4. Because you know wealth, a lot of times, robs you of dependence on God. Right? That, I grew up in a, a fairly affluent part of our city. We, we, we call it Lee Summit. I don't know you guys, any, we have people that grew up in Lee Summit. And the people that live in Lee Summit, for the most part, I was poor uh, personally, but I lived in a neighborhood where there was lots of, of fairly wealthy people. And I remember when I got on fire for the Lord, how difficult it was for the wealthiest peers of mine to accept Jesus Christ. Because they had everything that they needed, right? And in their mind, they were completely taken care of and life was going good for them, right? And so sometimes wealth can get in the way of a relationship with God. But no, no, not for Job. For Job, his wealth did not stand in the way. Look at verse 4. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their, for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone out, the Job sent and sanctified them and rose early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus uh, Job did continually. So in other words, what's going on here is that whenever someone was celebrating a birthday, he's got 10 kids, that's a lot of birthdays, right? And as siblings may do, they got together and they celebrated birthdays together and they would feast. Now, Sometimes, sometimes birthday celebrations can get a little out of hand, right? There's some drinking and there's some feasting and there's some partying. And so whenever one of these feasts would arise, Job would go and he would pray for his children. And he would pray that they would retain their holiness, that they wouldn't sin against the Lord, that they wouldn't curse him in their heart, and he would make sacrifice. Now the really interesting thing about Job making sacrifice is this has nothing to do with the Mosaic Law. This is, this is a very, very much a free will offering along the lines of the Abrahamic sacrifices, right? Or, or, or like what we see Abel doing before the Lord early on in Genesis. And so he's doing this out of a free will because he understands the power of sacrifice. He understands the power of covering. And so he's on behalf of his children as a, a father priest and as a shepherd of his family. He understood prayer and he understood the value of sacrifice and he went before his holy king, and he makes sacrifice. So what do we see here about Job in terms of who he was? So we learn that, that Job fears God. He shuns evil. He's perfect in his generation. Beyond that, we learn that Job was wealthy and powerful and had a very comfortable life. And then we discover that Job is a man of spiritual disciplines and practices, and that he loves his family, and he trusts God for their souls. But listen carefully. What we, what we see here in this story is that despite his holiness, despite the fact that he was financially secure, despite the fact that he had a biblical worldview, 
Suffering sought out Job, and it found him. You know, a lot of us, we look at our lives and we say to ourselves, God, I, I, I love you, I, I go to church, I, I serve you, I've discipled, I'm in LFBI classes. And, and for all accounts, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm perfect before you. Why is it that you've allowed this suffering into my life? A lot of us are often, we're confused. We think that, that the security, maybe that your family has provided for you, or for some of you who have, have really secure jobs, and you're making good money, and your bank account is growing, and you're investing. And a lot of us say to ourselves, how come despite all of the comforts that I have, all these things that I've worked so hard for, why is it that my life is still so difficult? And we ask ourselves questions like that because we know we know a little a little bit about the taste of suffering some of us in this room we've been through hardships we've been through trials we've seen things and we've found ourselves asking God really really difficult questions about why it is that we're enduring what we're enduring now I want to say this and I want this to to frame our conversation That as our, as our world progresses and gets closer and closer to the rapture, there's a good chance that we don't even know what suffering really is. And there's some of us in this room, we are going to face suffering that's imposed upon us. Or some of it will be circumstantial. But the point is, is that for many of us in this room, we haven't even seen suffering yet. It's coming. It's seeking you out the way it sought out Job. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond when things get very, very difficult? And I, and I, want, I want to believe that, that for us in this room, we're, we're mission-minded enough to say to ourselves that despite our circumstances and despite the difficulties we face, that we're going to stand with the Lord. That's a really... That's a really easy thing to unpack intellectually. And we make these vows before the Lord, like, Lord, I'll never turn my back on you. We say things like that within our prayers. But then, then the hardship falls upon us. And those vows we make become a reality. And I wonder if, if, if Kaya, a, a group of, of believers that say that we're mission-minded, we say that we're, we're seeking souls, we say that we're living after the Lord, we say that we love the things that God loves, I wonder, I wonder how sure that really is. How will we respond when the difficulty comes into our lives? Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, we discussed the sons of God when we talked about Noah in Genesis chapter 6. We talked about the sons of God, and we know that the sons of God are angelic beings, right? Now, all the accounts that we can find in the Old Testament to the, in reference to the sons of God, that's referring to the angels, right? So we know that in this situation, we have... The fallen angels, along with Satan, coming before the Lord. And they present themselves. This is a, a parlay, right? 
You can, I don't know if you guys are into history, but, but I like history a little bit. You can imagine like Civil War generals coming together and meeting to discuss treatises and whatnot. And they come together and they have these very formal meetings. Everybody's in their proper garb with all of their, you know, stuff displayed. And it's very, they treat each other very formally. And I kind of imagine that's how this is happening. Now, now where this takes place, this, this doesn't tell us. We kind of imagine it taking place in the throne room of the Lord. But we know that darkness isn't allowed in the presence of, of the throne room, right? So it's a, very, it's a very difficult thing to understand. Perhaps somewhere in the universe there is a, there's a Sweden of sorts, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, and, and in this situation we've got, we've got the enemy coming before the Lord and they're having a com- conversation. That's what's taking place here. So we have these fallen angels and Satan, the enemies of God. The word Satan, we know, means the adversary. They're gathered together to meet. In verse 7 it says, The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. So God asked Satan, Whence comest thou? Where are you coming from? Now this just for frame of reference, is the same exact question that Jesus Christ asks Judas. Whence comest thou? Where are you coming from? And the response of Satan was, I'm coming from walking about the earth. I come from, I'm coming from walking about to and fro throughout the earth. Now throughout history, we know that it's common for landowners, people who own lots of land, to go and to survey their land. Does anybody, has anybody ever watched Downton Abbey? All the ladies are like, yes. <laughs> Eva loves Downton Abbey. So what that means is, I love Downton Abbey. Okay? And so, I don't, you, I don't, if you know the character Robert Crawley, he's the Earl of, uh, what, the Earl of what, Eva? Well, what's the, t- what's the, the, the land that he owns is called the, what, the, what's the family name? I'm putting you on the spot. I was actually just testing her. It's the Earl of Grantham. <laughs> so maybe she's not as big a fan as I am. <laughs> but so the, the Earl of Grantham, what he would do is he'd go out, and in some of the episodes, he'd go out and he would survey his land. He'd go out and walk around uh, all the land and the property that he owned. We can see this in Scripture, too. Um, Abraham is asked by God to go out and to lay claim by walking the land. We see in Zechariah that the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself is pictured measuring out Jerusalem with a measuring rod in preparation for one day laying claim on on Jerusalem in the future kingdom. He's preparing his kingdom. He's surveying the land. And this is exactly what Satan's doing. In John 14.30, it tells us that Satan is the prince of this world. And as a matter of proprietary duty, he goes to and fro, laying claim on his domain and subjugating his people. That's what he does. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, uh, sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So here's key point number one. The righteous remnant must know that they occupy enemy territory. The righteous remnant has to be fully aware that you live in a world where you are prey to Satan. If you're not aware of that, then you're not ready for spiritual warfare. 
If you're not aware of that, you're only just preparing for the day in which you too will be sifted, just, just like the rest of the world. We have to be aware that Satan hates us. And as a matter of his duty, he walks about and surveys the world in which he is prince. And he is looking for opportunities to bring down mankind in droves. And if it wasn't for the blessing and the protecting arm of God, all of us would be, all of us would be dead meat. You understand? That's his job. And if we're not aware of that, if we're not aware of the spiritual warfare in which we live in, then we're in trouble. So as a remnant, a remnant, we've got to be aware of our enemy. Now let's go on with our story. Verse 8 says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Now I want you to understand right now, this is the most wild part of the entire story to me. Okay, so what we have here is Satan going about the earth looking to sow seeds of destruction in the lives of men and lay claim on kingdoms. And he comes and he parlays with God in, in some meeting place. And the first thing that happens really in our story is God pauses and he says, hey, have you considered tempting my son, this, this righteous man, the one who, who I've blessed with, with physical blessings beyond any in the east. I've, I've given him wealth. I've given him comfort. I've given him security. This man who's righteous before me, he's perfect in, in all of his ways and all of his actions. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of sacrifice. Have you considered this one that I love so deeply? Have you considered tempting him? This is mind-boggling to me. Because so many of us are convinced that when difficulty comes into our life, well, that has to be the result of some sort of sin. I had to have done something wrong. There has to have been something in my life that I did, some failure, some moral failure. Why else would, would, would difficulty or trial come into my life? And we ask ourselves questions like that, like, well, what did I do to deserve this? But we don't understand the ways of God. And in the case of Job, what's happening here is Job is essentially challenging Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered tempting him, harming him, causing suffering to come into his life? Have you thought about that? See, this means that God didn't invite suffering into Job's life because he was evil or because of moral failure. No, God selected him because there was none like him. God selected Job because of all of the things that we talked about, because of his righteousness, which brings us to our next key point. It's the righteousness of the remnant that qualifies them for suffering. It's the righteousness of the remnant that qualifies him for suffering. So in other words, if you're deciding to be righteous, if you're deciding to, to follow the Lord and to serve him, 
then it's only a matter of time where God is going to say, have you considered my servant Carly? Have you considered my servant John? Have you considered my servant David? And there is coming a time in which suffering will meet you at your doorstep. Are you ready? And I want to say this. One of the conclusions of this story is no one is really ready. No one's really ready for suffering. We'll get there. So of course, Christ is also our greatest example of this. You know, Christ suffered greatly. And we know that righteousness in his life begets suffering. But look at what God's word says about the suffering of the righteous. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for he is tried. For, uh, sorry, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So in other word, words, what the word of God says is it's a blessing to, to enter into temptation and suffering. Okay, well that flies in the face of the way we think about suffering, doesn't it? None of us want suffering. But the word of God says that for the believer, for the New Testament Christian, that suffering is actually a blessing. And that with it comes a crown of life. There's reward for the one who suffers, the one who endures. Now listen to this. It also, the Bible also teaches us that God keeps us from certain links of suffering. There's a threshold to the suffering. That God is always looking out for his people. And he's not going to allow us to endure things that we can't handle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to endure it. And so there's this... I mean, you could, you could do a study just on suffering in the New Testament, and what we discovered is that these diverse temptations, these moments of suffering, these moments of trial, they're actually good, and they work joy in the believer. They work patience. They, 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 they refine us, and they prepare us, and what they do is they teach us, and they actually reward comes with them. And that God is always looking out for us in suffering, and he's not willing to let us endure things that we can't handle. His strong arm of grace is with us, and it protects us. It's just like the arm of the detonator, Right? It's going to keep us and it's going to ensure that our, our toes touch the ground once again. Right? That's grace. But the thing is that we're also promised suffering. That just as Christ, the disciples of Jesus are to endure difficulty. And that might be circumstantial. Okay? That might be something that happens in your life. A family member perishes. It could be physical. It could be some aspect of your life, some, some, some part of your health that you begin to lose. It could be anything. It could be anything and everything as we see in Job. And so look at what happens. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face, just like anybody else would. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thine power. Now here's the threshold. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. God sets the terms, right? He's setting the terms here for Satan. He always sets the terms. He's in control. 
And what he's doing is he's allowing the suffering to enter in. Now Satan's response here is interesting. He says, doth Job fear God for naught? In other words, does this man worship and fear you for no reason? You're going to betray him just like that, God? And a lot of us, when suffering comes into our life, we ask a very similar question. When the difficulty comes and the trial comes, we ask a very similar question. We say to the Lord, did I fear you in vain? I mean, all this time when you were looking out for me, I thought you had my back and here we are, we stand here. And did did I fear you and I worship you and have faith in you in vain? But not Job. As the suffering descends upon him, he only more clearly sees the face of God. Let's look at the story. Verse 12. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, and there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians, which is a a tribal people of Ethiopia, fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans, and and the Chaldeans were predecessors to the Babylonian Empire, the people that we saw in the story of Daniel. And it says that they made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Okay, so in a matter of moments, Job has lost every physical possession that he has. Everything that he's worked his whole life to earn. But the worst is yet to come. Verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The sons, uh, thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness. We talked about in the book of Jonah, the great wind being a storm, right? A storm. That enters in a trial. A great wind came from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men. And they, they, are, uh, they are all dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Everything is gone. Every awful thing that anyone could ever imagine happening to their life is poured, about, uh, poured out upon Job in this moment. And I would say that none of us in this room have ever suffered at this level. None of us have endured what Job is enduring right in this very moment. None of us know what this tastes like. No one one in this room knows this kind of bitterness. No, we've all faced suffering. We've all faced difficulties of uh, different types. But none of us know this. Some of us have faced disasters that steal away the security of our life. Some of us have faced the loss of family members and friends that make us despair of our own, of our own life. I remember when my, when my brother died. I was, I was 22 years old. He died in a car accident. And I remember despairing for my own very life and the pain that, endure, that I endured for, for a year or so was so grievous. It was painful. It stayed with me. It was awful. Moments of depression, 
But I've never faced anything like this. And many of us have never faced any grief that even touches in any way like this. But the question for us is, how does the righteous remnant endure the sufferings of this world? How might you respond when God allows you to enter into great suffering? Would you, would you cry out, why me, like so many people do? Would you lay charge against God or blame him the way Jonah did? Remember how Jonah blames God? Would you curse God and abandon your faith and go find yourself somewhere? There's so many people, I'll just say this, there's so many people in this ministry over the years that have faced some sort of trial, and rather than pressing in, I mean simple difficulties, like, like I haven't found a spouse yet, or people don't understand me very well, or I've struggled with depression for a while. And they just leave. They just flee. They just disappear. And I would say that, that in a world where the depression rates and the suicide rates are increasing at a, at a rapid rate, and no one can quite put their finger on it. No one really understands. There's not just one thing. There's many, many variables there. But I would say the same thing is true in the church. Among the people that are believing we just don't know how to suffer. We just don't know how to do it. But Job did. Job did. Verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job's whole life is decimated. He has nothing left. What we're going to see in chapter 2, if you continue reading, is that even his flesh is oppressed with boils. And the pain that he's enduring, just even, even in his own body, is more than many of us could handle. Everything is gone. And what does he do? He worships. Key point number three. The strength of the righteous remnant is found in their unshakable Worship. Another way of saying that is that the, the strength of the righteous remnant is their ability to lay hold on grace properly. Job shaves his head and he puts himself low to the ground. And he declares that he has nothing left. And he says to the Lord, Naked I came into the world, naked I leave. Blessed be you in your way and the things that I can't understand. And in the insight that I don't have, your ways go beyond me. And in my lack of understanding, the only thing I can say is, 
is, Lord, let it be so, I'll worship you. Remember when we studied Acts chapter 16, we found Paul and Silas at midnight in prison, having suffered a beating and their feet are fast in the stocks. Remember how they responded? They prayed and they sang. And times were hard. When they were at the end of their rope, they chose to worship. Now here's the thing that I want to warn you about, is that many of us would think, we're confused, we'd think to ourselves, well, worship, that means, that means singing, right? That means like coming before the Lord, and we would confuse a lot of times what we do when we come into this room and, and we sing these songs as somehow being worship. Now, not that you can't worship when you come into this room, but so many of us, we're just rehearsing words as a matter of duty, and it means nothing. They're vain and they're hollow. They're as hollow as all the cattle that Job owned. They're as empty as all the possessions that he had. They're as empty as all the good works that he, that he could claim. And, the, and when we come in here and we, we ascribe praise to the Lord, a lot of us, we don't humble ourselves like this. See, what we see happening here is we see Job worshiping in purity. He has nothing to offer the Lord but praise. There's nothing left. See, worship that strengthens the soul is worship that humbles the man. And the righteous man is the one who, tru is the one who truly knows how to be desperate before God. He knows how to be hungry he understands just how poor he is. He's a man who knows just how fearful he must be. And everything in him and every bit of him only longs for one thing. And that's one last and final glimpse of the face of God. That's all he wants. Is if I've got nothing left, God, if there's nothing left to my life, if you, if you choose to destroy me now, then in this life, just give me one more, one more glance of your face. How do I suffer righteously? The answer is in perspective. Romans 8.18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1.6 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations at the trial of your faith, being much more precious than, than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. When we endure suffering, will we find ourselves laying hold on God? And one of the character qualities of a righteous remnant is going to be that the difficulty in your life does not cause you to flee, does not cause you to ask the question why, does not cause you to shake your fist at the Lord. It causes humility. It causes brokenness of spirit. It causes contrition. And it produces worship that's real. That's authentic. That's true. That's desperate. 
See, what, what the, the true righteous remnant understands is that they have nothing but grace. That as their life is like the detonator or like a roller coaster ride, their security in the grace of Jesus Christ. And if everything else is taken away, all they have is one thing, and that's grace. And that's sufficient for them. That's sufficient for them. If all I have left is your hand, Lord, that's good for me. Now, there may be some of you in this room who your, your life has been a roller coaster ride. And you feel like you're free falling. But you don't have the surety that Job had. You don't have the surety that comes with knowing Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and being able to have knowledge that, that no matter what happens to you or what befalls you, God's with you. You might not have that strength. You might not have that surety. And so as the worship team comes up, I, I want to I pose two questions. First of all, if you're a believer that's been going out and, and, and living life with the idea that somehow you are uh, not prone to suffering. In other words, you've been flippant with the way that you live. And it's time to pause and consider true humility. Because we worship a God that allows suffering into our lives. And if you don't acknowledge his grace from day to day, then when that suffering comes, you'll be sifted by the world. You understand? There's others of us in this room right now who are enduring a difficulty. There's suffering in your life even right now. You know that there's something, some trial, some difficulty, some relationship that's broken, some sort of financial hardship that you're facing, some, some, job at your, uh, some issue at your job or in your career. Some aspect of your life that's broken, maybe you've lost a family member recently, maybe you've got someone in your family who's, who's ill and sick and you feel like you're at the end of your rope and you don't know what else to think or to do. It's time to get like Job. And then there's some of you who don't know Christ. There's some of you who don't have surety of your salvation. That if you were to die today, you don't know where you would be. And you have no hope because you have no promise. And I'd invite you to come forward. And so if any of these things, you're wrestling with any of these things, today is, today is the day to get right with God and to seek his face and to get a glimpse and to know him for who he is and to worship him. So if... It, with that, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you. There's going to be counselors up here. And uh, if you need to talk to someone, if you need to work through this, today is the day. You understand? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, uh, this is a, I can't say this is a fun story. And uh, Lord, you know that this is the story that I struggled with the most to present of this entire series. But Lord, we can't be a righteous remnant if we don't know how to suffer. Lord, if we don't know how to face difficulty, it's, it's only a matter of time 
We won't be Noah, and we won't be Daniel, and we won't be Job, and we won't stand, we won't stand true in a wicked and perverse world. We'll fall. And so, Lord, teach us how to endure hardship and trial. And, Lord, it's not, Lord not, uh, don't let us be so proud as to assume that we're somehow safe from difficulty, that because we're a Christian or because we have financial security or, or life is good, that, that tomorrow that everything could change. Everything could be taken from us. And would we still stand with you? These are hard questions, God. And Lord, I don't even know how to pose them. I, my, my lips have been weak today. My mind has been not sh- as sharp as usual. And so Lord, help us to work through these things as your children and to turn to you. Father, help us, show us. How do we live righteously despite, despite the difficulties in our life? In Jesus' name, amen. hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.